Uh, you, if you turn in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 1, we're going to be beginning a series in 1 Peter today, and this is going to take us all the way up to uh, Christmas Eve. Before we read the passage, just a little background about 1 Peter. First uh, Peter, of course, was written by Peter, apostle and disciple of Jesus. Um, it was written to uh, the elect exiles in Cappadocia, Galatia, Asia, Bithynia, uh, and Pontus, which were provinces in Asia Minor. We don't know exactly who the people were that this book was directed towards. Uh, some people have suggested that this was written primarily to Jews, but most scholars now believe that it was written primarily to Gentiles. Um, and also we know that the Christians during this time frame were facing persecution. It probably wasn't a statewide persecution. probably wasn't illegal to be a Christian per se. But here and there they were facing opposition and they were facing ostracism uh, for being believers in Jesus. So we'll kind of address some background issues as we go throughout the book. But uh, let's jump right in. So First Peter chapter 1 starting at verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have, been, have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. Well, most of us know what optimism and pessimism is. Optimism, of course, is seeing the best in a situation. Pessimism seeing the worst in a situation. The classic example, the optimist sees a glass half full, the pessimist sees it half empty. And of course, we see that there's benefits to being an optimist. There's spiritual benefits to being an optimist, but there's also even physical benefits to being an optimist. John Ortberg, in his book, If You Want to Walk on Water, You've Got to Get Out of the Boat, writes, hope does not just motivate people to positive action, it actually has healing power. He cites a medical study in which 122 men had a heart attack for the first time, and then they were evaluated on their degree of hopefulness and pessimism. Of the 25 people who ranked the most pessimistic, 21 of them had died within eight years. 
The 25 who ranked the most optimistic, of them only six had died. Loss of hope increased the odds of death more than 300%. It predicted death more accurately than any medical risk factor, including blood pressure, amount of damage to the heart, or cholesterol level. Another article I read this week said that optimists are twice as likely as pessimists to have healthy hearts. But optimism, which is unchecked or unbridled, can also be dangerous. It can also be harmful. In his book, Good to Great, Jim Collins interviewed Admiral Jim Stockdale, who was uh, the highest-ranking officer in the Hanoi Hilton prisoner war camp in uh, the Vietnam War. And uh, Jim Collins asked Stockdale, so who were the people who didn't make it out? And he said, oh, that's easy. The optimists. Collins says, the, the optimists? I don't understand. The optimists. Oh, they were the ones who said, we're going to be out by Christmas. And then Christmas would come and go. Then they'd say, we're going to be out by Easter. Easter would come and go. And then Thanksgiving, and then it would be Christmas again, and they would die of a broken heart. So when we're talking about optimism and pessimism as kind of viewpoints, we don't necessarily want unbridled optimism, but we don't want unbridled pessimism either. What we're really looking for is kind of a middle ground, which is kind of what we might say is realism. We want to see things as they truly are. William Arthur Ward, a writer, says, The pessimist complains about the wind. The optimist expects it to change. And the realist adjusts the sails. Now, when it comes to the church, and I'm not talking about just our church, I hope, but the church in general, there are pessimistic Christians and there are optimistic Christians. Pessimistic Christians are quick to accept that things are bad in the world. They're quick to point out sin. and When we're doing things, they're quick to say, well, you know, you're bound to face suffering. And it, it almost gets to a cynicism where we kind of expect things to fail. Then on the other hand, we have kind of optimists. That if you share a prayer request with them, you're like, I have confidence that you're going to be healed or you're going to be financially wealthy or all these things are going to come together for you. And then there's this kind of unbridled optimism. And then when the healing doesn't come or the finances don't come through that we hoped, we're left kind of devastated. But I think the gospel kind of gives us a middle ground, a realism. What I would say is the gospel provokes an optimistic realism. It's optimistic in that it provides an uplifting view of humanity and the situations we find ourselves in. But it's also realistic in that the things that it describes are not some abstract hopes or dreams or wishes. They are things that are happening and are going to happen. And so as we look at the gospel and understand the gospel, it should change us in a good way. It should give us a more optimistic, realistic worldview. It should give us joy and purpose. And hope. So as we look at this passage, kind of the general heading over this whole passage is that the gospel provokes an optimistic realism. But then there's some specific things that we can look at this in this passage that the gospel also provokes. Three things. The gospel provokes worship. The gospel provokes endurance. And the gospel provokes awe. So we'll look at these things in turn. The first, the gospel provokes worship. In the text, in verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This word blessed 
in the Greek, one Greek dictionary defines it as worthy of praise or blessing. That God is worthy of praise and blessing and honor and glory. And then after that, it tells us why He's worthy of praise and honor and glory. He's to be praised because He caused us to be born again. Being born again speaks of a new hope, a new birth, a new creation. And He gives us, Peter gives us a number of descriptors of this new birth. He says, first, this act of being born again is according to God's great mercy. It's not something that we deserved and not something that we earned. It's according to God's great mercy because the truth is, the Scriptures tell us that in and of ourselves, we're by nature sinners and that we make choices to sin. We're born sinners and we make sinful choices that confirm those, that sin nature. The natural bent of the human heart is towards sin and away from God. Ephesians 2.1 goes so far to say that we're dead in our sins. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirits that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now that's our natural state without God, without hope, hope dead. And into that situation, God sent His Son, Jesus, who came to the earth, lived a sinless life, died on the cross for our sins, and rose again from the grave three days later, defeating sin and death once and for all. And so this text tells us that this being born again is made possible through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It's the basis for being born again because Jesus died for our sins, paid the penalty for our sins, defeated sin and death, uh, be, from, after rising again from the grave, we can be born again. And then it goes further. It says that we're born again to a living hope. That is, God takes us from being dead to being alive. He takes us from not having hope without having God in our lives, from serving idols and hoping those things will satisfy us, to having a living hope that will not disappoint us, that will never let us down. And then he goes further and he says that this being born again is to an inheritance. He says it's to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. One scholar says this first Greek word translated as imperishable speaks of freedom from death and decay. Second, translated undefiled speaks of freedom from uncleanness or moral impurity. The third, translated as unfading, speaks of <coughs> freedom from the natural ravages of time. These things speak of the permanence of the inheritance that's ours as believers. That it's something that cannot be changed. That cannot be taken away. It reminds me of the famous statement by Jim Elliott, the famous missionary, who said, He's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And then the text goes even further and says that Believers in Jesus are guarded through faith for a salvation to be revealed in the last time. Believers are guarded through faith. That God guards His children. He makes sure that they don't fall away, even when their faith is weak. That they will endure. He gives them the strength and the grace that they need. 
And so Peter says, despite the opposition that you're facing, despite the persecution that you're facing, God will be faithful to you. God will guard you until He's completed His work in you. And so the first part of this passage tells us that the Gospel is the good news is good news for us as believers. The gospel, when I'm talking about the gospel, I'm talking about the good news of what God has done in Jesus. They came to the earth, died on the cross for our sins, rose again from the grave. So this passage tells us that it's good news for us as believers. It's good news that God has made a way for us to spend forever with Him. It's good news that God has forgiven all of our sins in Jesus. It's good news that He's willed for us an inheritance that's Never going to fade away. That's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. That's reserved with our names on it in heaven. It's good news that God took us from being dead and having no hope, serving idols, to giving us a living hope that will never disappoint us. It's good news that the God of the universe who spoke the worlds into existence guards us with the same power that He used in the creation of the universe. It's good news that the God of the universe has promised that He'll never leave us or forsake us. In short, it's good news that Jesus is alive today. The Gospel changes everything for us. And when we get a glimpse of the Gospel, it ought to provoke worship in our hearts. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is worthy of all praise and honor and glory because of what He's done for us in Jesus. So the gospel provokes worship in our hearts. But the gospel also provokes endurance because we live in a broken world. Life is not simply a bed of roses. Things don't always work out as we might hope. Our lives involve suffering. Our bodies fall apart, decay. Sometimes our relationships are broken. We fall upon hard times. We lose loved ones. And so we live in that reality, reality of suffering. But look at what the text tells us. It says, In this you rejoice, though though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. No, he says, but now for a little while. In other words, your sufferings, they won't last. They're not like the inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled and unfading. Your sufferings are temporary. They're going to come to an end. In the scheme of eternity, there is nothing. But this passage is realistic. It doesn't just talk about kind of this idealistic universe where everything works together. It speaks of the reality of suffering in our world. But even in suffering, it tells us that God is doing something. That even in suffering, good things can abound. Because it tells us that when we suffer, it tests the genuineness of our faith. Now, there are millions of people who go to church each week in our country. Um, people go to church for many different reasons. But imagine that all of a sudden there was this edict or you know, this law that was made that you, you're not allowed to be a Christian anymore. You're not allowed to go to church. And if you go to church, you could risk facing a fine or possibly even being sent to jail. How many people would actually be Christians? How many people would actually meet together with other believers if that was the cost? But suffering has a way of kind of testing whether our faith is real. It kind of tests whether we're following Jesus because if we think that we follow Jesus, our lives will work out well, we'll have 
good finances, a good relationships, a nice family, things will go off. It tests if that's our mindset or if we're following Jesus because we believe that he's the one that satisfies our hearts. If we're following him because we believe he's the one who's changed us. He's the one who took us from being dead and made us alive. That he's the one who took us from having no hope to giving us a living hope and inheritance that's unfading, unfailing, imperishable. It tests us. Are we following him because he's the one who satisfies us? See, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our trials, that, that, those are the times when God can be most glorified in our lives. Look at what the text says. It says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your souls, the salvation of your souls. You haven't seen him, but you love him. You don't see him now. All you see now is your sufferings. All you see now is your persecution. And yet you love him. And yet you believe that he is enough for you. That's the kind of faith that is honoring to God. That's the kind of faith that makes a world take notice. I mean, faith is great when everything is going well. When we're just smooth sailing. But when everything else is taken away and still we can say Jesus is enough for us, Jesus is going to get us through this, Jesus is going to take care of us, the world takes notice. And it tells us in the text, in the last day, it will result in praise and honor and glory. First and foremost for Jesus Christ and secondarily for us. And finally, he uses an illustration of gold. Gold is very valuable in the ancient world. Something that lasts a long time. Doesn't tarnish or fade. And in the ancient world, there was a process that would, they would go through to purify gold. Uh, one source I, I read said, In ancient times, this form of refining involved a craftsman sitting next to a hot fire with molten gold in a crucible being stirred and skimmed to remove the impurities or dross that rose to the top of the molten metal. So gold was something that was purified, that all the impurities were removed so that it wouldn't tarnish, it would be strong. But Peter says even the purest gold eventually will perish. Even the purest gold eventually will come to nothing. It will eventually be nothing. But when Jesus returns, believer's faith will still remain. A believer's faith is more precious than the purest gold. It's something that will not fade away, that will bring honor and glory to Jesus Christ. So the gospel gives us endurance because it tells us first that our sufferings are temporary. It's for a little while. And second, it tells us that when we suffer and have faith in the midst of suffering, it brings glory to God. And third, we see that we'll be rewarded when Jesus comes again. So the gospel provokes for us endurance. The gospel provokes worship, it provokes endurance, and finally, lastly, the gospel provokes awe. Look what it says in the text. It says, The prophets searched and inquired what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Now, the Old Testament prophets prophesied about the one who was to come, who would rescue his people from their sins. And as they did that, 
they kind of inquired and they searched, who is this person who is to come? Who is this Messiah? When is he going to appear? And as they searched and inquired diligently, finally they came to the realization, he's not coming in our lifetime. Many in the early stages of the Jews felt that way. They would never see the Messiah who would come. But many had a longing for that Messiah who was to come. Some such as Simeon, who was a man in Jerusalem. Luke chapter 2 describes a story. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light for the revelation to the Gentiles. And for glory to your people Israel. Likewise, there was a prophetess, Anna. The daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from, the, from when she was a virgin. And then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple worshiping, fasting, and with prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak to Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So we see an old man who's waiting for the Messiah, and he finally gets to see the Messiah, and now he says, I can depart in peace. I've seen God's salvation. We see a widow who fasts and prays in the temple all day long. And she gets the joy of experiencing the Messiah. Of seeing what God is going to do. And we as believers get to experience that reality. We get to see the full picture of what God has done in Jesus. It's something that the prophets didn't get to see. Yes, they prophesied about the Messiah. They knew He was coming. They knew some things about Him. But they didn't get to see exactly what God was doing. And we get to see that full picture. And finally, the text tells us that these things that were proclaimed, namely the gospel, are things which angels long to look into. The, the angels long to look into the gospel. I went to a con- concert this past week. And uh, at the concert, there were two artists. And uh, near the end of the concert, they went and they walked through the aisles. And they were just kind of shaking people's hands and whatnot. And so they're walking through the aisles and, you know, anyone who was on the edge of the aisles were kind of putting their hands out to try to shake their hand. And some people got to shake hands with these artists. But everybody else who was a little bit farther back, as they walked by, they're just, you know, moving their heads, just trying to get a glimpse of them. And I think that's kind of what the angels are like. They don't get to experience it. They don't quite fully understand it, but they're, they're looking at it from a distance, looking at what God has done, and they're just in awe of the majesty. They're in awe that God would put skin on and come to the earth and die for sinful human beings. They're in awe that God would make people who are dead alive. They're in awe that God would make people who follow idols follow the living God. And say, so look into the Gospel with awe. And with wonder. But guess what? We're the people that get to experience that gospel. 
We don't just look at it from afar. We get to experience the love of Christ as displayed in the cross. We get to have a personal relationship with God. We are the ones who were dead and who were made alive. And when we get a glimpse of that, it should provoke awe and wonder in our hearts for what He's done for us. The Gospel promotes, provokes an optimistic realism. It's optimistic. Yeah, there's suffering in the world. Yeah, there's bad things that are happening. Yeah, the world is going in a direction we don't like. But yet, guess what? God is still working. God is saving people. God is changing people. God is refining our faith to one day bring Him glory and honor. And when we get a glimpse of what He's doing, it should make us worship. It should make us endure in the face of suffering. And it should make us bow down in awe of what he's done for us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for what you've done for us in Jesus. We stand in awe of what you've done for us. That you would rescue us. That you would redeem us. That you would even choose to use us for your kingdom and for your glory, even though we don't deserve it. God, I pray that we would never get over the gospel. That it would be the thing that shapes us. The thing that forms us as a community, as people. That as we get a glimpse of it, we would be changed. As we get a glimpse of us, it, we would love you more. That we would endure in the face of suffering. And that it ultimately would bring you honor and glory. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.